0: Father, we love these songs. They draw us near to the manger. They help us to think about the gift of Your Son, the the miracle of Christmas, uh, God and sinners reconciled. And as we uh, and we investigate the incarnation now, as we look into the book of Hebrews behind the curtain to see why You did this and and the significance. Whether this is our first Christmas or whether we are veterans at celebrating Christmas, that you would remind us and show us your son and his work for us. And that by that we might see your love and your mercy and your grace and your desire to be restored to your people. So guide us now as we, as we uh, talk and as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever received a, uh, a Christmas gift that was strange, odd, or maybe that you didn't quite understand? Um, <laughs> Reader's Digest recently had a contest on who received the, the strangest or oddest Christmas gift, and uh, I'd love to read a little of these to you for your entertainment. Um, how about this? Uh, one writer wrote in and, and wrote, I once received a toilet seat. I was not sure what message that was sending. Another uh, reader wrote in and, and, and said, I received a bag of cotton balls. Uh, useful, but not sure the significance there. Uh, this one said, I got a book of etiquette from my mother-in-law. So uh, read in what uh, th- This this reader uh, said, I, I received in my stocking one year a single purple shoelace. Uh, another uh, writer, uh, reader, wrote in and said, uh, I, I got, you know, you've seen those, those little candy canes that have the M&M's in them? You've seen the little plastic candy canes? So I got one of those, and it looked like an off-brand of M&M's candy in a plastic tube, and I realized once I tasted them, they weren't just off-brand. They were made of lentils. Lentil <laughs> M&M's. I, anyway. Uh, um one, one uh, reader wrote in that she was given a literal lump of coal. She went back and asked her friend, how am I supposed to interpret this? And the friend said, it's the gift of warmth. <laughs> now the former best friend uh, there. Uh, a used candle, used candles are not good, um, oral hygiene kit complete with tongue scraper and dental tools as well as the toothbrush and then uh one year uh, a, a young lady said she was she was dating uh, this guy and the guy kept saying i have the perfect present for you the perfect present for you and when she opened the perfect present it ended up being an electric shock collar for her puppy which uh, again he wasn't sure what to do with that she did never use it though so and boyfriend is no longer around so um, this happened in our own family okay and and not from one of you but not from one of you just just saying, uh but from a person uh, very kind to give my daughter a Christmas gift. Uh, she opened a gift that was confusing and strange. It was a clearly used stocking, maybe from a garage sale, with the name Fred on it. <laughs> now, if we'd gotten Fred and Wilma, maybe there would have been some uh, sense there. And, and I'll remember, I'll, I'll never forget, and I, was, I was a kid, I was probably in 7th or 8th grade, and I had I had saved... All my money working hard that year for a mountain bike, right? I, mean, I was thinking of this mountain bike. It was a nice one and, and went and got it. And uh, a few months later, I went to go ride it and noticed it was no longer in my garage because someone had stolen it. And uh, you know about devastation... And uh, so I I was really hoping for a new bike for Christmas, right? And, you know, you come out and you look at the tree and, you know, by the time you're in eighth grade, you can kind of figure out, you know, is there a bike there or not? You know, it's like the big package and nothing was fitting a mountain bike replacement. And I remember uh, getting all my gifts and and mom and dad brought this last gift in a little box and, and I opened it up and it was this old key. And I'm thinking, okay, well, uh, I, I'm too young to have a car, although that wouldn't have been bad, right? And uh turns out that it, it, was, it was the spare key to the family van. And as they escorted me out to the driveway and it unlocked the, key, the, the doors to the family van, there was a brand new mountain bike, and I will never forget it. But see, the thing about that was it was a great gift. I just didn't know what to do with it initially. And when we come to the book of Hebrews, I mentioned Philippians and Hebrews are the two books in the Bible that tell us the most about the significance of Christmas. And so as, as we come around the book of Hebrews this morning to, uh, to, to see the significance of the incarnation of Jesus becoming a man, we, we find something. As we unwrap the book of Hebrews to discover the wonder of Christmas, and the significance of Jesus coming to earth as a baby, we might be a bit surprised or even a bit confused, uh, the, the way that I was when I unwrapped, you know, the old key. Why did he come? Why did Jesus become a man? Now, here's Hebrews' answer, ready? And this is this is the theme of the book. He came, you ready to unwrap it? To become a high priest. Now, at this point, you're feeling like you just got a stocking with the name Fred on it, Right? What am I supposed to do with that? And that's because we're a bunch of Gentiles. We're not Jewish. We don't understand that the book of Hebrews was written mainly to a Jewish audience. And and there's significance here in Jesus coming as the high priest. In fact, the the, the writer is so moved by this, he's going to spend 13 chapters talking about it and the significance of it. But if you're like you and me, you go, I want to be excited. I know I should be excited. I'm just... Maybe needing a little help with that. Why do we need a high priest? And why was Jesus given so that he could be our high priest? So uh, I want to invite you uh, to the book of Hebrews, if you're not already there, to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. We're going to look just at two sections in Hebrews today, but we're going to jump all over the book. Because it really is... The, the main theme of the book, but look at Hebrews chapter two, verse seventeen. This is this is where we get to the Christmas stuff in the book of Hebrews. Okay, so, so look with me here at Hebrews chapter two, verse seventeen. You follow along as I read. Therefore, he—that's Jesus—had to be made like his brethren, that's people, in all things. Right? He had to become human. He had to become a man. Why? Look at the verse so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So there it is. You ready? Why did Jesus come? When we ask Hebrews the question, why did Jesus come? The book responds to be our high priest. That's that's the gift of Christmas. Is Jesus the high priest? And, 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 and unless you think that this is a passing comment in Hebrews, just flip the page to Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1. Okay, the writer is, is so set that we don't miss this. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. You ready? Are you looking? Okay, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now the main point in what has been said, okay, so if we're confused, what's the main point in what the writer is trying to say? He's eight chapters in now. What's the main point? The main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest. See, that's the message. That's the main point. And again, the, the challenge for us is, okay, so what? Okay, why do I need that? Why should I be excited about this? And, and, and uh, I did the math for you. There are 36 references in these short chapters to the word priest or priesthood or, or something related to priest. So, so this is the theme, and I want to show you this morning why you should be excited about this. OK, I'm going to show you. And uh, so we're, we're going to see in our time, Lord willing, two Christmas responses to Jesus, the high priest. Two Christmas responses to Jesus, the high priest. And, and hopefully you've got an outline in your uh, bulletin there to help you navigate. And we'll throw it up on the PowerPoint here so you can follow along. OK, this is the theme. This this is the hub around which the book of Hebrews revolves around. So, so we've got to get this right, okay? So let's back up. We need to kind of get a running start as we get into the Christmas sections of Hebrews. So go back to chapter 1, verse 1. And, and these, are, these are great verses, guys. Th- these are like what Terry preached on in Revelation 1, the description of Jesus, or what Paul talks about in Colossians 1, a description of Jesus. This, this, is, this is a great, great section describing Jesus in his person and in his work. Look at this. Chapter 1, verse 1. God as after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. That's a reference to the Old Testament there. Verse 2, In these last days, in these last days, this is the climax, right? This is the culmination of Revelation. In these last days He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. And He, Jesus, is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. And Jesus upholds all things, by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than angels, as he has inherited a more excellent way. See, right out of the gate, the, the, the writer wants us to see that this book is about Jesus. This book is about Jesus in his person and in his work. And what he's doing here, from the very verses on, he is building a case that Jesus is superior. Jesus is preeminent. He is above all. And we say, why Why would he want to do that? Well, this is where we need to put our our first century sandals on and remind ourselves what's going on at the time that this book is being written. You remember, as I mentioned before, this is a book written to a largely Jewish audience. And let me tell you what's going on. This is happening in the 50s, the 60s of the first century. The temple hasn't been destroyed by Rome yet. But what's happening for really for the first time is that Christians are being persecuted. And specifically, this book was written because Jewish Christians, people that were Jewish by heritage, that have trusted in Christ as, as, the, as the Messiah, they are being persecuted in many ways by other Jewish people that have rejected the Messiah. So our writer is writing to them to help them to just solidify their faith that Jesus really is the Messiah and he's going to argue that Jesus is better than everything we have in the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, he's going to say. Now mixed in with these Jewish believers in, in terms of the audience that he's writing to, there are fence sitters. Right, People interested in Christianity, but they haven't quite bought in. And there are people that know nothing of Christianity. So our writer is throwing all these things out, but his message is the same. And this is what you need to get. Jesus is superior. He's the Son of God. He's come to live and die as the Messiah to reconcile people to God. And and if he's talking to a Jewish audience, he has to convince them that Jesus is better than anything the Old, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant had to offer. Now, just, just look with me, and you'll see how he does that. Just look back with me. In chapter 1, we, we got into the tale of it, or the beginning of it, in, at the end of verse 4. Chapter 1, he's going to argue that Jesus is better than angels, because angel worship was happening in a lot of settings at this time. Flip down to chapter 3. In chapter 3, he's going to argue that Jesus is better than Moses. In chapters 5 to 7, he's going to argue that Jesus is better than human priests and brings a better priesthood. In chapters 8 to 9, he's going to say that Jesus brings a new and better covenant, better than the old covenant. And in uh, chapter 10, the writer's going to say that Jesus brings a better and sufficient sacrifice which brings new, a new and living way to have a relationship with God. And in light of those 10 chapters of saying he's better, he's better, he's better, he's better, he's better, the last three chapters, 11, 12, and thirteen, say, "Now go live in light of that." There, there's the book in a minute and a half. Okay. So, but but you need to get that because we're just gonna we're gonna parachute into chapter two, and a little bit in chapter four, and but you need to see that this this goes somewhere. And in fact, I would love for you to read the book of Hebrews this week sometime. And as you read it, I want you to hear Jesus is better. Because he's the high priest, and that has significance in your life. It's, it's incredible. Don't, don't worry, there's some passages that are hard to understand. and Don't, don't get, don't get uh, uh, caught up in those. See the big picture for what it is, and you will be riveted as I have been this week in the study. Okay. So in light of the fact that Jesus is better, here's what he's going to say. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. In light of Jesus being better. Chapter 2, verse 1. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. So he snaps his fingers. He looks at his eyes. He says, in light, Jesus is better. You need to listen to this. You need to pay attention. You, you need to be on point with what I'm about to say. And in fact, he's going to say it again in chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Pay attention to Jesus. Focus on Jesus. He's drawing them to see if Jesus is really superior, we better pay attention to his message, shouldn't we? We better pay attention to why he came. And and our our writer is writing, lest that his audience miss Jesus and fail to enter the future heavenly rest that he later talks about. But he insists on this one main idea. It's really the theme of the whole book, and it's this, Jesus is the true an ultimate high priest. You say, great. What do I do with a stocking that says Fred on it? Well, let's look. Let's now go to the Christmas section, okay? Chapter 2, verse 14. We we looked at a verse a moment ago. Let me read the section, and then we'll unpack it, okay? verse Chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had Uh, the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Welcome. To Christmas according to Hebrews. Okay? Let's look at the first response, right? How are we supposed to respond to Jesus coming as our high priest? Well, 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 let's, ask, let's ask that question. Here's response number one. Don't harden your heart toward Jesus the high priest who can redeem you. That's the first message of Hebrews. As we learn of Jesus as the high priest, the writer is going to plead with people. Do not harden your heart to this man. Because he's your only hope. He's the only one that can help you. He's the only one that can redeem you. He's the only one that can make atonement for you. Okay, so let's let's watch him unpack this. Okay, look back at the text. Look at verse 14. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same. And then down in verse 17, he says something very similar. He, Jesus, had to be made had to be made like his brethren in all things. Now, now right there, that is a reference to something that we call the incarnation. Okay, probably most of you have heard that. That's not the company that makes hot chocolate. It's incarnation, okay? And incarnation means the eternal God, Jesus, who has always been God, comes to the earth and he takes on a human nature as he comes. So he, he is literally walking the planet... As 100% God and 100% man at the same time in the same person, and, you ready for this? Even now, as he sits at the right hand of his Father, he is both divine and human at the same time. You say, why is that significant? I'll show you why that's significant, okay? We'll get there in just a minute, okay? But that's what it means, taking on flesh and blood, being made like his brethren in all things. He came to take on a human nature while still being God. You say, well, why did he do that? Well, look at verse 17. Verse 17 tells us why. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. That's the point. That's the reason he became human. We say, why a high priest? Well, it tells us. He, he, he did that to become a, a high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, do you remember what that word propitiation means? I know it's a big word, and, and it's one of those $100 theology terms, right? But propitiation refers to a sacrifice that's made that satisfies the judgment of God so that it no longer falls on you. Okay, so when propitiation is made on your behalf, what that means is the judgment that you deserve because of your sin is satisfied by that sacrifice so that it is no longer a threat to you. Okay, I was teaching my kids when they were little, we call it a sponge sacrifice, right? Like a sponge in the kitchen because it absorbs the wrath of God so it doesn't fall on you. That's propitiation. Jesus came, took on a human nature to be a high priest to offer that propitiation. Uh, In the Old Testament... Uh, it's not the word propitiation that's used. It's one that you're probably more familiar with. It's the word atonement. Atonement. Now, you'll remember from your Bibles that the high priest in the Old Testament acted as a mediator between the Israelite people and God. And he did that in many ways. The high priest had lots of roles. There was a whole sacrificial system. And if we had time, we'd go into all of that. But the high point... The, 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 the red-letter date, if you were Jewish and you were living in this time, the red-letter date in your holiday calendar, if you were Jewish, was something called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And this, this was the most elaborate and dangerous day because it involved a very significant work of the high priest. And some of you know this. You can read about it in Leviticus 16. I'll just overview it for you, okay? It involved five animals, two rams, two goats, and one bull. And on that day, the high priest would go and he would make atonement for himself. He would make atonement for his family. He would make atonement for the tabernacle or the temple. And finally, he would make atonement for the sins of the people. He's acting as a mediator between God and people. And the significance of that day was there was a room in the tabernacle and then later on in the temple called the what? The Holy of Holies or the most holy place. Inside was the Ark of the Covenant, that special gold box that represented the presence of God and the holiness of God to the people. And there were curtains that that kept that room dark and you weren't allowed to go back there unless you were the high priest on this one day. Jewish tradition tells us that they would actually tie a rope to the foot of the high priest because if he did something wrong in terms of all the instructions to do the Day of Atonement and he died, God killed him on the spot like a, like a Nadab and a Bihu moment, well, no one wanted to go in and get him out, right? So they'd pull him out with the rope. So this was a dangerous day as the high priest went to make atonement for the sin. He was offering a sacrifice that would resolve the wrath of God so that God and sinners could be reconciled. Is this starting to sound like Christmas a little bit? You see? Okay. So that's the high priest. That's what he did. It removed the threat of judgment. There's just one little problem. And Hebrews is going to rain on our parade when we think about this, okay? What's the problem with the Old Testament system of high priests? Well, hold your hold your place there. Flip over to uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Okay, I'm, I'm going to take you a little bit around Hebrews, so stay with me, okay? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. What's the problem with that, right? What's the problem with, with the human high priest? Chapter 10, verse 1 of Hebrews. Are you there? For the law, talking about that system, right? Talking about the Old Testament system, since it has only a... What's the next word? Underline that, if you like to underline stuff in your Bible. It's only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Uh Uh-oh. That doesn't sound good, does it? Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed would, well, cleansed, would no longer have a consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. And then there's this shocking statement it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. You ready for this? It doesn't work. Because that wasn't the point. See, so what's the point of slaughtering all those animals? What's the point of all those rituals, all those routines, the tabernacle, the temple, the holy holy? What's all of that? Well, he tells us it's a reminder of your sin. And that you need someone to intervene on your behalf if you don't want to die and go to judgment. But see, look at the terms there. That was just a what? It was a shadow. You know, it's like, it's like when your kids make a Lego model of a fighter jet and they fly it around the house. You go, oh, that's really neat. And then you go to an air show and you see the real thing. You go, whoa! Right? It's a shadow. It's a picture of what's to come. And a shadow, if you ever looked at your shadow, does two things. It's the form of the object and it points to the object, but it's not the real thing, isn't it? The human priests and the animal sacrifices were not sufficient. Here's why. Because only a perfect priest bringing a perfect sacrifice would work. And since there are no perfect priests, because there are no perfect people, God became a man in Jesus. There's our perfect man. There's our perfect high priest. He had to come as the perfect high priest to do that. Uh, if you're in chapter 10, just back up to chapter 7, verse 26 chapter 7 verse 26 he writes for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest now here's the description of jesus ready holy innocent undefiled separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people why because he did it once and for all when he offered up himself See, this is radical language. Jesus comes as the perfect man to be the perfect high priest to offer the perfect sacrifice. You say, a blood, or a bull, a goat, a sheep. What's the perfect sacrifice? It's Him. So He's the perfect man to be the perfect high priest to offer the perfect sacrifice of Himself, which is the only perfect sacrifice. Do you, see that? do you see that? That's the logic of Hebrews. That's why when we unwrap Hebrews and we see high priests, we go, yes! Because the blood and bulls of goats given by a human priest would never do that. It's just a shadow. Look down at chapter 9 now. Flip the page. Chapter 9, verse 11. Chapter 9, verse 11. But when he, Christ, appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered to the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, And he came not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place, not the one on earth, by the way, the one in heaven, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offer himself without blemish to God, how much will that cleanse your conscience from dead works, To serve a living God. Do you get it? Do you see it? That's why this is worth getting excited about. Jesus came to do what was only pictured by the Old Testament. But only he could do in actuality in his person. One more. Just flip the page one more time to chapter 10. Look at verse 11. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices. Here's another verse to underline which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Here it is. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's it. That's the point of all of this. Jesus is our perfect high priest. He entered the holy place, not the one on earth, the one in heaven. He made atonement for sin, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood, and that satisfies God's wrath, and it restores our relationship with God. We sing it this season, right? It's God and sinners reconciled. But in order to have a mediator... We need to have a perfect high priest. And in order to have a perfect high priest, we need a perfect man. In order to have a perfect man, we needed God to become a man. We needed the incarnation. We needed Christmas. That's the point. Now, I never noticed this. You you know the verse, 1 Timothy 2, 5. There is one God. How's it go? And one mediator between God and men. What's the next phrase? Why is it the man? Because the mediator has to be a man. See, You see that? It was there the whole time and, and I missed it. So it's, it's the man Christ Jesus. He is the one man who mediates between God and people. He's the perfect high priest and he had to be a man. You say, so what do we do with that? Go back to chapter 3. You say, great, thanks for theology lesson. Awesome, okay? What do we do with that? Well, I'm not going to tell you what I think you should do with that. I'm going to let the writer of the Hebrews tell you what to do with that. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 3 of Hebrews, verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. In fact, He's going to say it again. He's so emphatic about this. Back down in verse 15. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. The message of Christmas that Jesus has come as the perfect man to be the perfect high priest, to reconcile God and sinners by offering a perfect atonement of himself is this. Do not harden your heart to that message. Do you know how many people have heard the gospel? How many people have heard about Jesus the baby in Bethlehem? How many people have heard, and how many people have, you know, Spotify is, you know, blasting out these songs that Wesley wrote, right? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. God and sinners reconciled. And you know what they do? They harden their heart to the message. They yawn and move on with life. They make Christmas about everything except this. See, the message of Christmas when you hear this is do not let your heart be hard to this message. Can I ask you, this Christmas, is your heart warm and soft to the Savior? Or is it cold? Is it indifferent? Is it busy? Is it distracted? There's so many things that make our hearts grow cold. Have you noticed this? Materialism will make your heart grow cold toward Christmas. Stuff and Amazon, Walmart, Black Friday, those are great things. But if we're not careful, those cause our hearts to grow cold and stubborn. Busyness will make your heart cold. Political distraction. Is that too personal? To be politically distracted will cool your heart even to the degree of indifference if you're not careful. Unconfessed sin Bitterness will make your heart distant and cold and stubborn and hard. A grief or loss. It's normal. We, we grieve. Many of us have lost family and friends. And there's a lot to grieve about in our country, isn't there? But, but grief that has no hope in the gospel will lead you to be hard to this message. What about familiarity? Kids. Where's my young theologians? Young theologians. You've heard this. Many of you have heard this since you can remember anything. Where is your heart toward Jesus? Is it warm? Is it trusting? Is it believing? Is it embracing? Is it submitting? Is it finding joy and delight? You say, presents are good and toys are awesome, but Jesus is what this season is about. I need a high priest more than I need a PlayStation 5. I need a high priest more than I need my guy in office. I need a high priest more than I need my health back. I need a high priest more than I need financial security. The message of Hebrews is do not harden your heart to this message. And guys, there are a thousand things that will harden our heart to this message. You know, God is so wired to the human heart that it only has two possible responses when it hears Jesus in the gospel. It either softens humbles itself, submits, delights, trusts in, or rejoices, or it hardens, it cools, it becomes indifferent, it becomes distracted, and it ultimately dismisses. You know, if you harden your heart in the more explicitly Christian moments of your life, such as a worship service, or these essential Christian holidays like Good Friday and Christmas and Resurrection Sunday, you know what you do? You train your heart to be especially cold and indifferent in times where the reminders of our glorious Savior and His gospel are not so much externally imposed upon us. And if we're not careful, we'll look up one day and our heart will be hard and stubborn toward this Savior in this message. So, so do not harden your heart. That's the message. Trust him. Believe in him. Delight in this. Rejoice in it. But don't let your heart become hard. That's response number one to Jesus, the coming Christmas high priest. Let's look at response number two. Response number two. Draw near to Jesus, the high priest, who can help you. Draw near to Jesus, the high priest, who can help you. Back in chapter 2, where we started, we looked at verse 17. He had to be made like all his brethren in all things. Look at verse 18. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Not only is Jesus our high priest who can redeem us, he's our high priest who can help us. This isn't just about salvation. This is about sanctification. It's not about coming to Christ it's about living as a believer. That's the second part of this. He can help you because he's the high priest. In fact, this whole section, this point here, <clears throat> that Jesus is able to help those of us, <clears throat> excuse me is expanded on in chapter 4. So just flip down to chapter 4. This is the last time I'll take you anywhere, I promise. You can stop in 4. Chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, there it is, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Look at this. As we expand this out, watch how Jesus helps us in the day-to-day, right? That's what he's focused on now. Jesus is your high priest, and he enables you to endure. He enables you to keep going. The text says that's verse fourteen. Notice Jesus passed through the heavens. There's an illusion here. The high priest had to go into the outer court, into the holy place, into the most holy place, the holy of holies, to make atonement. And and Jesus here, or the writer here is saying that Jesus didn't pass through an earthly tabernacle. He passed through the heavens. He went as it very were, as it went. As it were, to the very place of God, and made atonement, a true atonement in the heavenly places. And in light of that, in light of that amazing gift, what does he say? He says, "Let us hold hold fast our confession." You say, "What does that mean?" Well, if you read Hebrews, you know what that means. Holding fast your confession means you don't fall away. It means you keep on believing. You keep on the narrow road. You keep on living out your faith. You keep on trusting in Jesus. You keep on seeking Him and and honoring Him and pursuing Him in all that you do. And, And we know the Bible is very clear a true believer can never lose their salvation. We understand that. But the Bible is also clear that one of the ways you know that you're truly a Christian is you keep on believing. You keep on enduring. And the writer to Hebrews is saying, it's a real threat. How many of you know somebody who's professed Christ at one point and fell away? Okay. It happens. And and, and this is here so that we don't do that. This is here so that we know how to endure, so that we don't get discouraged. And we need this. Do you know how people usually fall away from the faith? I mean, sometimes people have like a, a huge, just, you know, life-changing situation and, and they, they abandon their faith. But you know usually the way people abandon their faith? It's a slow, gradual process. They didn't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to ditch this Christianity thing. But they didn't maybe pursue communion with God in, in their Bible and in praying. Something happened and they distance themselves from some of their Christian friends. You know, they get distracted by their career and sports. They get, they get caught up in the world. They get, get caught up in politics. They get caught up in finance. And, and, and before you know it, they're walking away. And, and like Jesus in the parable of the sower and the soils, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. It dies. That's how people fall away. And I want you to see that we need a high priest. You know why we need a high priest? Because he is the key to our endurance. Jesus enables us to continue in faith. Jesus enables us to keep believing. He enables us to keep on trying, though there's a thousand reasons to be discouraged. He helps us when we put our faith in a political process, when we tolerate sin and worldliness, when we, we, we grow bitter toward others, or we just plain stop trying, Jesus rescues us from those horrible things that can cause us to abandon our faith. Now, can I ask you a question? Do we need endurance now more than ever? How was your 2020? As we go into this next year... You know, it's, it's not politics or a vaccine or anything else that's going to help us to keep on keeping on. It's Jesus, our high priest. And you know how he's going to do that? He's going to remind us in this text how to do that. Because we, you know what? As we go into this next year as a church, as believers, we need to remain hopeful and optimistic, though our culture gives us <laughs> many reasons to be discouraged. Whether it's government or politics or or injustices, or whatever. In this next year, we need to strive for unity and community, even when things are difficult. We need to not be distracted from our evangelistic mission. We need to love our neighbor and practice righteousness. And these are all things that, that God calls us to do, and we need His grace to help us to endure. So how does He actually help us to endure? Let's look at the second part here. Jesus helps us to endure how? By sympathizing with you in your struggle because he has been tempted in all things as you are. Look at verse 15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. See, Jesus was and is fully God. He all, always, always will be. But he is and always will be, from now on, fully human. He's, he's fully... Uh, a person, even though he's also fully God. And as a, as a person, he experienced the, f- the full range of human experience. Uh, uh, you don't need to turn there, but just listen to chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. The writer says, although he was a son, listen to this, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal life. You say, wait a minute, I thought he was God. How, why did he have to learn? See, see this, this is this is what makes your brain hurt. Okay, it's true. It's just hard to understand. Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully a man. And as as a as a person, he had to grow up. He cried in in the manger. I know the song says no crying he makes. That's not true. Okay, not true. Um, you had to change whatever they used for diapers back then. He had to learn the local language. He had to learn reading, writing, and arithmetic, right? He, as a man, he had to fully develop in all those things, even though, you ready? In his deity, he's omniscient. He develops as a normal human being. He learns obedience. Now, now unlike the rest of us, he got it right the first time, every time, right? That's what it says there. He doesn't sin. But he learned that. And, and, and I think sometimes we forget that. I think we think of God and Jesus. You know, he's deity, he's divine, he's fully God. But we forget he was also fully a man. That word weakness is there. Look at that. It says um, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. That word means limitations and helplessness. Can you imagine the eternal son of God when he takes on a human nature, experiences, limits? Weaknesses, the one one who's literally keeping the heavens from exploding right now. He's running the whole universe. That was chapter 1. Knows what it's like to live within the confines of a human experience, fraught with weakness and frailty. Okay, you're not getting it. Jesus had backaches. He had disappointments. He got sleepy. He got hungry and thirsty. Friends failed him. He was misunderstood, just like you and me, and all the rest. Jesus dealt with political uncertainty and challenges. And we got it good, guys. He lived under the Holy Roman Empire, right? He, he lived under Sarah, uh, 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 Caesar, right? And, and the, the local governors like Pontius Pilate and, and kings like Herod. You think he didn't deal with a temptation to be frustrated? He did. Jesus dealt with the loss of friends, like many of us have lost family and friends this year. Jesus dealt financial pressures. Whatever our weakness, you know, fill the blank and my weakness is, he knows what that's like. He was fully human, even to the point, and this is really crazy, even to the point of experiencing temptations. Jesus himself, look back at the text, was tempted, it says. Now, I know what you're thinking. Kids, you're saying this, right? There's a want of kids going. But doesn't James 1 say that God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not, is not tempted by anybody, right? Right? So how can God who cannot be tempted in Jesus be tempted? The answer is he was both God and human. In his godness, in his deity, he could not be tempted. He could not sin. But he came and lived as a man, and as a man he could be tempted. As a man he was experiencing limitations. And as a man, hear me, he had to resist temptation in the power of the Holy Spirit, informed by the Word of God, as he looked to his Father, just like you and me. So when you're fighting sin, you have a faithful high priest... Who sympathizes with you in that struggle? That's the point. Jesus was tempted in his humanity. He was really, truly, actually tempted. Think about this. Jesus was tempted to be worried and anxious, just like you. Jesus was tempted to put his hope and confidence in money, just like you and me. He was tempted in the area of lust and sexual sin, just like you and me. He was tempted to be sinfully angry. He was tempted to be impatient, to retaliate when wrong, to be frustrated with people. He was tempted to focus on his own needs instead of the needs of others. Jesus was tempted to disobey and disrespect his parents. Jesus was tempted to not depend on his father and spend time with him. He was tempted in every area that a human can be tempted and thus he can sympathize with us. You know what the word sympathy means? It means to feel for, experientially. So, Whatever sin you're struggling with right now, if you were to bow your head and talk to Jesus about it, you know if if, if we could hear him audibly respond from heaven, what would he say? I know what that's like. I know what that's like, because he's been tempted in all things as we are without sin listen to <laughs> Listen to Newton. This is the author of Amazing Grace. Wonderful counsel. Listen, he he had a friend that wrote him and said, nobody understands my circumstances. Nobody understands what I'm going through. He wrote back. He said, if you're saying, if I have never been in the like circumstances, it is impossible for me to conceive of the uncomfortableness of them. Okay? And Newton says this, that reminds me of one admirable peculiarity of the gospel, which seems a fit topic for a paragraph in a letter to you at this time. I mean, the encouragement it affords us to apply to our great high priest from the special consideration, listen to this, of his having felt the same sorrows which we also feel, though he is now exalted above all our conceptions and praises and is supremely happy in himself and the fountain of happiness to all his redeemed, yet Jesus is still such a one as can be touched with a feeling of our infirmities. He has not only a divine knowledge, but an experiential perception of our affliction. And then he quotes the hymn writer, Isaac Watts. Listen to this. Touched with a sympathy within, he knows our feeble frame. He knows what sore temptations mean, for he has felt the same. That's what our writer is saying. That he understands, he's experienced it. He knows he knows all of these things, right? Now look at this. You say, okay, he can sympathize. I get that. That's great. But also, he's uniquely qualified to help you because he never sinned. He's uniquely qualified to help you because he never sinned. The end of verse 15, he's been tempted in all things as we are, yet what? Without sin, he never once gave in. That is mind-blowing, isn't it? Now, you ready for this? That's the life you and I were supposed to live. That's what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. That's what this whole human creation was about. Jesus comes as the second Adam, right? He lives the life we should have lived. In relation to his Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit, he resists temptation, he resists temptation, and he always walks in conformity with the will of his Father. He never deviated, not even once. And you know why that's really good news because that means he can help us you say i 've failed i 've tried so many times, Pastor Keith, why should I try again? Why should I keep trying to do this i 've struggled with this my whole life. The answer because Jesus never sinned, and he can help you you, you know how it is you, you ever go to a doctor I remember years and years ago I think I think Lisa I think, I think we went to the doctor for you for something we went there, and we had the Best experience, this doctor. She was so nice and so great and gentle and kind and listened well and compassionate and sympathetic. And at the end, it's like, okay, doc, what do we do? I don't know. See, compassion is only valuable, in this case, if it's coupled with competence, right? Jesus sympathizes with us. We get that. He feels for us, but he's also competent. He can help us to do something about it. And that's what we see here is both the compassion and the competence. I mean, if you're struggling with anxiety, who would you rather talk to? The person that says, oh, yeah, I struggle with anxiety too, just like you. I have panic attacks every day. Taking all these meds and, you know, man, the sky is really, really, really falling today. And and I just, you know. Or do you want to talk to the person that says, yeah, I know what anxiety is like. I've battled that. I have. I've struggled. and, And I've found a peace that surpasses understanding as i've learned to cast all my anxiety on him because he cares for me you know i struggle some days but god is my growing joy in the midst of my troubles who do you want to talk to you want to talk to the one that can help you right the one that's been successful and that's what jesus did he was successful uh, and we see this. We don't have time to look at it. You say, how was Jesus successful? He relied on his father. He depended on the Holy Spirit. He was fed by the word of God. He, stole, he stared down the devil and said, man will not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's how you do it. And that's how Jesus did it. And we can turn to him and he can help us. And that's, that's number four here. Jesus will supply what you need to resist temptation. When you come to him for help, he will supply what you need to resist temptation when you come to him for help. Look at, look at verse 16. Therefore, okay, here's the action step, right? You want the action item? What do we do about this? Here we go. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. We open up the Christmas present of the book of Hebrews. What does it say? Jesus is our high priest. We stare at it like Fred with a stocking. We go, what do we do with that? We don't harden our heart to the message that Jesus has come to make atonement so that God and sinners can be reconciled. He's our life, right? He's our only hope to have a relationship with God. And secondly, we're seeing here, he can help us with our afflictions today. The point here is he can help you with your need. He can help you with your sorrow. He can help you right now with the struggle, with the temptation, with the loss, with the anxiety. Whatever it is, he can help you. Why? Because he's lived it. He feels for it. He's He's gone through it just like you. He can sympathize with you. And he's done it without sin. And therefore, he says this. Will you come to me and let me help you? Could it be that you're struggling and you feel like there's no answer to your situation? Because you're just not asking for help. Listen, Jesus says, let us draw near with confidence. You say, why confidence? I think a lot of people are scared of God. I think that's why that's there. I think a lot of people think, if I go to God and I tell him what I'm really like, what I've really done, what I'm really struggling with, the things I've really thought, the things I've really said, the things I'm really struggling with, he's going to condemn me, he's going to judge me, and he's going to say, go somewhere for help. I think that's why that word is there. And yet we have a sympathetic high priest. You go to him and you will not get condemnation, you will get compassion. You will not get judgment, you will get grace as you go to him honestly honestly, in the brokenness of your heart, saying, Lord, here I am. I'm struggling. Will you help me? We go. Notice the the, the throne, right? We go to the throne. Where's Jesus right now? We, We saw it in Philippians. He's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. He is exalted. He's not here in a manger. He's ascended and exalted on his throne. And you go there and you think, is that even safe to do? What does it say? You go what? Confidently. Boldly. You, you can walk, as it were, into the holy of holies and live to tell about it is what he's saying. You have that access because of this high priest. You have the privilege of being a son or a daughter in the family. And, and just as when your grandkids come in the house, it doesn't matter what you're doing, grandpa, what do you do? You drop what you're doing. You take those kids into your arms. That's the picture. We come confidently, we come boldly because we know there's not going to be judgment. There's going to be compassion and care, not indifference, but sympathy. And notice when you go to him, when you turn to him, he's going to give you divine medicine. I remember when I I moved, I'm a city boy, right? And when I moved out here, uh, I saw these big, huge, like cylinder things. And it's like, what is that? Someone finally told me, Oh, it's a grain silo. Oh, cool. Like you put grain in it and stuff? Yeah. Okay. Alright, great. And these huge, massive things, right? And, and and you think, how many how do you measure grain, by the way? What, a bushel? Okay. A bushel of grain, lots of grain, right? You put how much do you put in there? And you say, okay, that's great. What does that have to do with this? Look at this. When you go to him, the throne of grace, we will receive mercy and find grace to help in our time. I picture in heaven these massive Jesus made silos. One of them says grace. One of them says mercy. And He's just sitting there at the controls, waiting for you to come. And you come, and He says you're hurting, you're struggling. And He He hits the controls, and mercy and grace abound into your life to help. Say, so do you need encouragement? There's mercy and grace to help. Do you need wisdom? There's mercy and grace. To, he wants to dispense. Do you need rest? There's mercy and grace to help. Do you need power to resist temptation? Guess what? There's mercy and grace to help. Do you need hope in your depression? There's mercy and grace to help. Do you need joy in the midst of your sorrow? You. There is mercy and grace to help. Do you need forgiveness for the sin you think can't been forgiven? There's mercy. And there's grace abounding to help. Where are you turning? Where are you turning? Jesus calls us to turn and go confidently to him for help. If you're weary, if you're tired, if you're discouraged, is it possible that you're looking for help in all the wrong places? And Jesus says, come. It's, it's Christmas time, guys. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, has come to us. God in the manger, he's taken on a human nature in order to be a faithful high priest who feels for us And can help us. And what we've learned is he is a sympathetic savior. He is compassionate yet competent. He's been tempted and yet triumphant. He is high and exalted. Seated at the right hand of his father. His hands are readied on the divine levers. That dispense mercy and grace. For every need. And he stoops down as it were from heaven. And calls us to come to him confidently. And expectantly. To receive his help. Let me ask you one question. What's one item in your life right now that you need to go with to him for, for mercy and grace to help? Will you do that? And know that he loves to help by giving mercy and grace. That's our high priest. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these verses that just massively help us to understand the Christmas story. Thank you for the writer of Hebrews, whoever he was, that that you used him to write such helpful verses that put really the whole Bible in perspective. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus that he feels for us, that he's walked our road, he's, he's dealt with our stuff. And he has infinite mercy and grace to help us if we'll just go to him. Father, thank you that... Jesus is not indifferent, but he's a friend. And he's a friend that can help. Father, whatever our trial today, whatever our situation today, would we go? Father, help us to stop stalling. Help, help us to stop looking in the wrong places. Help us to, to, to not be so distracted that we don't go to the one place that we really need. And we are so, so thankful. For the gift of your son. We pray in his name. Amen.